Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. Protective disclosures, whistleblowing, it's a topic that's been on the minds and to do this for HR teams and employers for quite some time now, but something that many are still struggling with. And with further deadlines looming, are you and your organization up to speed on what to do, how to do it and when to do it? Well, to help you assess where you stand and what you need to do next, we're delighted to be chatting all about protective disclosures today to David McCauley, Senior Associate at McCann Fitzgerald. Thanks for joining us, David. How are you? Very good. Delighted to be here as well. Thanks, for, stuff. Thanks for your time. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, Founder and Managing Director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks. A few technical difficulties this morning, but um, other than that, all good. We got there in the end. That's it. So look, so let's jump right in and I'll come to yourself first, David, uh, if that's all right. So look, I think we all know there's some changes coming on the way and they have been, I suppose, in force for quite a while now, some of the changes. But for, I suppose, the next update, David, what's kind of coming? Who will it apply to and when? Absolutely. Well, it's a topical time to have this discussion, I think, for probably two reasons. The first, as you say, is because there is a looming deadline which is about to hit a broad category of employers, and that is going to happen on the 17th of December, uh, which by the time people are listening to this podcast is going to be even sooner than now. Um, and on that date, the obligations on employers of more than 50 employees to have a uh, policy or procedure in place to deal with protection disclosures will apply. Um, so that is, I suppose, the, the most obvious looming deadline. And then also the other reason I say it's topical to have this conversation now is because we've just received interim, we've just received final guidance, I should say, from uh, the department, which outlines what is expected to be done by public bodies and prescribed persons in relation to protected disclosures. And I know many of your listeners won't fall within the category of public bodies and prescribed persons, uh, but actually those guidelines will be helpful uh, for private 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 employers as well. And so some regard can be had to them in the absence of any general code of practice, which we've been waiting on for quite some time. Um, but in terms of the obligations that are, I suppose, new, as I say, the headline one is that there will be this obligation to have a policy and the obligations that flow from that um, are have been in place for over a year now for employers of 250 or more employees. They're obviously going to apply much broader now. And um, there is, I suppose, within that an expectation that you will acknowledge reports that you receive from a reporting person within seven days that you will diligently follow up on their disclosure or their report uh, that you will appoint a uh, designated person or persons to manage uh, that disclosure within your organization and that you'll take appropriate action to deal with the wrongdoing concerned as well as providing feedback to the reporting person we can go into all those different components to any greater extent you might like. But I suppose there's been a shift in focus between the old regime and the new regime, because previously uh, the only concern of the legislation was to ensure that 
an employee wasn't penalised for having raised these issues. Now we continue to have that protection, but layered on top of it is a whole new raft of procedures which are expected to be followed by employers that are in scope. And so that's, I think, something employers will need to be mindful of. Uh, they may well fall in the category of uh, in-scope employers already, but if they don't, they may once again by the 17th of December of this year. Definitely. And I suppose kind of digging into the, the legislation, the rules, whatever we want to call it, David, um, you gave us a good outline there, but just to dig a little deeper, I suppose, when it comes to those kind of standout elements, and you mentioned a couple already, any there to kind of jump out to you that I suppose employers should be paying particular attention to? And I know you've kind of answered that, so maybe a little addition of anything that may be, might be kind of a risk if it's left unnoticed, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. There are a few things which I think from a year's experience with the regime have been consistent uh, clinch points uh, for employers. I suppose one is that there is now an enhanced protection for confidentiality of the reporting person. Um, and that feeds into the procedures that employers will need to have in this area, not only what's contained within them, uh, but uh, how 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 the very reports themselves are managed and stored. So the procedures that you have have to be such that they ensure the security of reports and of the confidentiality of the reporting persons. So you can expect the need to be a dedicated repository for receiving these sort of protected disclosures. It has to, it has to be sourced within something that's locked down or encrypted. Um, you know, separate from other lines of communication. So many employers will have a dedicated email address, let's say protected.disclosures at organization.com or whatever it may be. And there's restricted access to that email address and there is a logging of access and it's, you know, appropriately ring-fenced within their IT system. So that, that I think will be one aspect of the regime, which I think is important for employers to be aware of, is that enhanced protection for confidentiality. Um, and the other, as I say, is that there is an obligation now just to take action in the first place, which wasn't something with which the regime was particularly concerned with prior to this year. Um, and that action can you know, take in more, in more cases than not the form of a complete investigation whether or not that's governed by terms of reference or not. But the, the investigation obviously will take account of the, the nature and seriousness of the wrongdoing that's concerned. And some some organisations might say, well, in fact, in our circumstances, we think this is the kind of thing which can be dealt with informally. Uh, I think there's probably some merit in doing that in appropriate cases, but you have to always bear in mind that there is this extreme protection for the confidentiality of the reporting person and so if you propose to deal with something informally you may need the consent of the reporting person to do that and that can sometimes come as a bit of a surprise to uh to employers when you tell them about it i think um if i pick out one other thing that um has stood out for me in advising employers over the last year on this uh it would be in relation to the potential for what would routinely be considered uh, run-of-the-mill grievances to fall within the scope of the protected disclosures regime and that's something that the Supreme Court has confirmed can happen uh, in a case recently called Varanya and you know you might imagine that an employee an employee for example in a university that complains of overcrowding in a lecture theatre well that seems like something that is fairly run-of-the-mill and you can expect their employer might just deal with it without engaging the full procedures that are set out in a protected disclosures policy. Uh, and the question is, well, is that appropriate or not? Um, and I think if something is raised in a manner which is set out in your protected disclosures procedure, then clearly you're going to need to deploy the procedures that are set out 
uh, in those in those policies. Uh, it's another matter if the grievance or if the the report isn't made in that in that specified manner, and it's just raised relatively informally or off the cuff to a line manager, because in those circumstances, having regard to the language in, in Section 6 of the legislation, I think there's probably a credible basis to say you don't need to deploy your full uh, suite of resources, even though that person would still be entitled not to be penalised for, for what they've raised. You know, I think in other circumstances, employers uh, might allow for disclosures to be made to line managers, in which case, then yes, you will just have to uh, deploy your full procedures uh, in order to deal with that. Um, but I would mention that just as an additional uh, feature of the legislation that's been creating some controversy over the last year for, for some of our clients. Brilliant. And I suppose kind of similar question to yourself, Mary, from the legislation, from the, the, the looming updates. Anything standing out to you that employers should be kind of particularly aware of? There is kind of a lot of layers in different parts to this. It's not as simple as it might be might be underselling some other pieces of legislation, but there is a couple of layers here that might not be similar that we'd have with, with other things, Mary. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? And and always as you start to push down the lines and, and you know, have um, a lower number of employees, the larger an organisation, the more sophisticated typically an organization is the more substantial their HR function, their IT department and, and all of that. And when you get into more of a smaller SME, um, this is where I often see the challenges uh, in terms of the how we do things and um, who's designated to deal with these matters as they arise. So, you know, given that example that you looked at, David, you know, typically an organisation in the past may well have just considered that, um, you know, a grievance or uh, something that they just need to handle informally. Um, whereas now I think people need to be a bit more cautious and, and you're starting to see, um, you know, those claims coming through the WRC where people have made what they believe to be protected disclosure, the organisation potentially having investigated it and, and all this dispute arising between whether it was a grievance or a protected disclosure and whether people were penalised or not penalised as a result of making it. Um, and so I think as with any um, new legislation or anything that comes into effect where employers have to kind of get to grips with it quite quickly, um, you know, it, the challenge can be in one, do we have a policy? Two, what do we do when we do have the policy? Three, how do we you know, distinguish between what might be a grievance and what might be a, a protected disclosure? And I think there is a bit of a fine line between those. Definitely. And I suppose kind of generally married the sense I get, obviously, from, I suppose, the, an element of an outsider looking in. Are HR teams, organizations, leaders finding this a little bit tricky? Because I think it always has been a little bit of a tricky one to speak about, to cover properly. And I think it's a good point you raised there, Mary, about we're all, already seeing some cases reaching the courts, reaching the headlines, which strikes me as a little bit early on in the advent of new legislation, if you know what I mean. So any kind of thoughts around that? Are people finding it kind of tricky to, to get to grips with? Yeah, I I believe so. I believe, um, you know, there there's a level of fear around it. And I think a, a lot of employees are looking at it and thinking, well, 
you know, if I was to take a claim through to the WRC under a protected disclosure uh, for penalisation, then I, I can potentially get an award of, of five times um, my salary and you know or sorry five years of salary not five times my salary but it, you know it is it, it obviously then is um more lucrative for somebody to make a, a protected disclosure as well so i think there is a reasonable level of fear surrounding it Definitely. I suppose then just jumping on that, that case law side of things, David, is there much case law around this? I know we've kind of alluded to it there. So I think it, it's, it's, it's a leading question saying, is there any around it? But any of note from, from your perspective? There, there is. There, there's a fairly significant body of case law that's built up in the time since mm. the original act came in. So it's called the, 20, the Protect Disclosures Act 2014, but it commenced with effect from 2015. So there was, there was quite a, a period leading into the new legislation that there has been a, a body of case law that has built up. I don't think most most of your listeners are probably familiar with most of the, the principles that are set out in all of that case law um, in the last, and most of it will relate to the old regime rather than the new regime, uh, although it will continue to have relevance to some extent. One of the, one of the significant cases in the last year, I've already referred to um, one of the more recent cases being Barania from the Supreme Court, uh, and that was the case in which the Supreme Court confirmed that it's possible for something to be both a grievance and a protected disclosure. Um, but one of the other cases that I think it probably wor- is probably worth mentioning is a case from earlier in the year called Barrett um, and the Commissioner of Angarda Shikana. Um, it's a decision uh, from the Court of Appeal, so um, the, the second highest court in the land. And some of the, the principles that were set out in that case essentially summarise what all of the cases to date have found have in regard to the legislation. And <clears throat> I think there are, there are points worth bearing in mind for your listeners uh, in the HR space, because some of the points are made uh, to dispel some of the, I suppose, misconceptions that exist in relation to protected disclosures. So oftentimes a client will say to me um, that this this employee was acting in bad faith, they're doing this in a reactive way, they're not genuinely concerned about wrongdoing. Uh, and as the court in, in this case pointed out, there's no requirement in the legislation for the employee to act in good faith. There's no impl- requirement that they act in the public interest. There is no requirement that they um, that you as an employer weren't already aware of the information. Uh, there's no requirement, for ex- instance, that they expressly refer to the Protected Disclosures Act when they're making a particular report. Um, it, it's perfectly uh, possible for something to be a protected disclosure, even if it just concerns the uh, treatment of the employee concerned. Um, and so all of these, I think, issues were addressed and teased out in that decision in Barrett. And it's one of the, I think, decisions that is well worth a read um, by by people who are getting to grips with this fear because there are, as you say, some significant sanctions in place in relation to uh, failure to comply with this legislation. And as Mary rightly says, awards um, are very much, it's capable for an award to be much higher in this space than it is in the standard suite of employment complaints where remuneration, where redress is capped at two years of remuneration. And so it's worth bearing in mind those things. Um, There are other cases that I think are worth mentioning as well. Um, but uh, one thing I would say is that some of them are now uh, a little bit redundant because the procedures will have changed so significantly following the new act. And one thing in particular I think that employers will want to bear in mind uh, is that under the new regime, 
the burden of proof in cases like this will be quite different. And there is a presumption that will now exist in proceedings before the Workplace Relations Commission that something is penalisation until an employer proves that it's based on you know, objective and, 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 and reasonable grounds unrelated to the making of disclosure. And so you can see how as an employer, it will be very difficult to discharge that burden if you don't have, you know, a reasoned decision behind everything you do vis-a-vis someone who has made a report. If you don't have, um, an ins- you know, if you haven't ensured that they're being treated consistently with the others in the organization and that you have an objective business rationale for doing what you do, whether that is sending someone for a you know medical assessment, whether it is you know, giving them a particular performance assessment or, you know, considering them for a bonus or whatever it, may, it might be. All of those sorts of discretionary decisions give rise to the possibility of a, um, a penalisation finding. And the onus is on you as an employer to show that it wasn't that. 100%. And I suppose I'll come to both of you for the next question. It's kind of a tricky one, but I'll, I'll come straight back to yourself, David, first, if that's all right. Is protected disclosures a common occurrence and I know it's a tough one to, to answer because I know we see some in the courts and it's obviously almost impossible to, to gauge how many how many of these processes happen internally and are solved and all that kind of stuff and don't reach the courts but do you get a sense that this is a common challenge something that was needed I suppose I know it's a kind of a tough one but any thoughts on that yeah I suppose there is some some data that you can rely on in answering that question and certainly in recent years the annual reports of the WRC show that there has just been a steady increase in the number of referrals made to it under this legislation and that reflects I think as we've discussed the potential for very serious awards uh, in these cases and it also I suppose reflects that there is a growing uh, awareness of this legislation among not only employees generally but their representatives um, and so I think it is worth pointing out that this is something that people should get to grips with for that reason, because there is um, a growing awareness of it. Um, you know, you, you've asked about um, about the, the, the trends, and I suppose it's important to bear in mind that there is possibility of particular rewards being made to employees if they refer claims, but there are also the legislation really does have teeth and there's the potential for sanctions to be imposed on people even where they have uh, acted uh, fairly vis-a-vis a particular employee. So, for example, it's now a criminal offence uh, not to have a policy in place if you are if you're within scope to have one. It's a criminal offence to penalise someone. It's a criminal offence to disclose identity of a reporting person uh, in a manner that's not permitted in the Act. Um, and similarly, it's a criminal offence for someone to make a report that they knowingly believe to be false. Uh, but from an employer's side, they, you know, th- th- those kind of criminal offences can have a serious chilling effect. Um, and it certainly focuses the mind when you hear that uh, awards of up to a quarter of a million euro can be made, fines, I should say, of up to a quarter of a million euro can be imposed on non-compliant employers. And in fact, liability can attach to directors and even managers personally where they're involved in that penalisation. So, um I suppose the scope of the the legislation is broad. The potential for sanctions is serious uh, and employers are becoming increasingly aware of it. And I think all of that is a recipe for those in the HR community and the compliance community to really get to grips with this legislation sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And Mary, I suppose our touch point is it's kind of a a double, I suppose a multi-pronged kind of perspective as well, Mary, in the sense that one, our employers coming to us us for support on this a lot in recent years and to even before the advent of this legislation, because we we know we do have, I suppose, kind of long 
long experience in, in this field. Is this something that has come up previously in years past? I suppose my, my kind of general questionnaire, Mary, is, is it something that's crossed your desk a lot, not just now, but in recent years as well? Yeah. In recent years, yes, but uh, more this year in particular, I have noticed uh, an increase, and that goes to David's point, I think, that uh, there is growing awareness amongst employees and their representatives, whether they be um, trade union representatives or or solicitors, um, of the possibility of, of... you know, effectively bringing forward a, a claim of penalisation. And the fear, I guess, from a HR perspective is um, if somebody makes a, a protected disclosure, irrespective of um, actual wrongdoing within the organisation or not, um, then does that mean a hands-off approach to the individual and and we can't performance manage, we can't deal with any disciplinary issues, we can't investigate um, an allegation against them, um, we can't um, manage them in the normal day-to-day way in which we would manage any employee. And there is that concern out there. Um, that I think is valid and, you know, from a HR perspective, um, understanding clearly uh, the parameters and the way in which uh, you, I suppose, the speed in which you deal with these matters in the in the first instance um, and how you treat people thereafter is really important. But, you know, I, I see a lot of HR people concerned about this and I see a, a complaints starting to come through um, around protected disclosures in areas where prior to this uh, act that people would have raised a grievance or, um, you know, complained under the dignity at work policy, complained about a health and safety issue, whatever it might have been, um, it wouldn't have come necessarily in the form of a protected disclosure. And certainly, I suppose, when you think about, for most people, the idea of whistleblowing um, comes from, you know, maybe some of those films we've seen about these large corporations, pollution and, and, you know, danger involved in products they're selling and all of that. And so it's kind of hard for, I I think, your average employer or HR person to get their head around, well, actually, this could be a health and safety issue um, that has arisen in the workplace. This could be... um, you know, somebody complaining, like David said, of uh, overcrowding in a in a lecture hall, and that you know, if you don't take the appropriate steps, if you don't look at your policy, if you don't protect the individuals concerned, can you later find yourself in the WRC facing um, a potential award of five years? And and those awards are no joke. A- any HR person, any organisation is going to be concerned about the risk associated with them uh, when someone raises a protected disclosure. And that's not to take away at all from those people who are brave enough to stand up and point out something that they really are genuinely concerned about in an organisation. But that's not always the case either. 
And if, if I might jump in there very briefly, Owen, just to mention um, that that concern you raise about, you know, when is something a, a protected disclosure? Uh, and, and ordinarily, people would assume that the Aaron Brockovich type scenario, that there is a public interest at play. That was something that the Supreme Court commented on in the Brania case a couple of years ago. And they said that it's quite surprising that the, the scheme is so wide ranging to fit grievances, routine human resources type grievances within its ambit. But they said that's what it does. And the, you know, the legislature has decided that we're going to stick with that that regime. Um, but just on your other point, I completely agree that there is the potential for uh, this to be weaponized by employees in some scenarios or to be raised for, for reports to be raised opportunistically. Um, and there, there's no getting around that. I suppose that's that's the case with any piece of protective employment legislation. Uh, but what I would say is that you know employers certainly aren't prevented from imposing legitimate discipline or performance management. And in fact, the you know, the, the legislation goes so far as to confirm that. The difficulty now vis-a-vis the situation in previous years is that the obligation is on us to prove in the first instance that we did it for reasons that weren't penalisation, that it was based on duly justified grounds unrelated to the making of the report. That just means you're going to have to have good rationale for everything you're doing, good paperwork, a good clear chronology of what's been happening, whether that's in the performance sphere or the conduct sphere. And as you point out, the awards can be quite uh, astronomical, at least potentially astronomical. And so when an employer is faced with one of these, that will influence how they deal with it. Um, and in fact, only this week, we've, we've seen the first published decision from the WRC that has actually awarded at the level of five years remuneration. It's typically, uh, I, I would expect to be made only in the most egregious of cases, um, but it's no longer a hypothetical. It's, it's actually happened. 100%. Yeah, and it's great to... I suppose it's great inspiration or, or, or I suppose great to see the, the headlines and those cases appearing because we can learn from them. Obviously not great to see them, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's a learning point for organizations and employers everywhere. So I suppose kind of final question to both of you, and I'll jump straight back in um, over to yourself, David, again. I mean, at the end of the day, no matter how risky or how tricky this is, it's something that employers do need to get their head around. So I suppose the question, David, really is when people want to craft their policy or know how to handle this kind of stuff, where should they be looking for inspiration? I suppose it is kind of like anything else where there will be obviously certain obvious things, but I mean, do we get a lot from case law? Should we go pick up the phone to someone like yourself or Mary early on to deal with it early? What's your, your kind of main main advice in that, in that regard? Yeah, there are plenty of sources out there, and I suspect actually that if you are coming at this cold, the likelihood is that you'll be overwhelmed by the, the level of resources. Uh, and perhaps the it won't come as any surprise for me to say that approaching someone like Mary or myself is exactly what you want to do. Um, but obviously that won't be possible for everybody. Um, and some people, um, certainly if you look at the, the legislation in itself, it's quite unwieldy even for someone who's trained in the area to, to grapple with. Um, and there are draft policies which are available, for example, uh, and which have been applied in the public sector. Um, but ultimately, I think the headline the headlines for people when implementing their policy is just to ensure in the first instance that you have a procedure for dealing with these reports, that you have appointed at least one designated person to properly address all of this, that you've considered um, the importance of confidentiality in everything that you're doing. Um, and uh, that I suppose that, 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 that you're conscious without maybe perhaps explicitly saying it, that there's the possibility that this could uh, infiltrate into routine HR grievance territory. Um, but there are plenty of resources out there for people to to, to, to to look at if they're putting in place their policies now before the 17th of 
December. Definitely, which is great. So I suppose similar question to yourself, Mary. As I said, a lot of people out there will be feeling it's something that they need to put on on the to-do list for 2024, but to be honest, it's probably something they need to look at sooner, if not already. So any kind of advice there about getting up to speed with this kind of thing? A lot of it probably is looking at foundations and ignoring, I won't say ignoring, sifting through the noise to find out what the key bits are, isn't it? Yeah, I I think so. And it's about uh, education and responsibility and getting to the to-do list of your policies and procedures. I mean, we're always saying it here on this podcast. If you reviewed your policies and procedures last year, um, a hell of a lot has happened in the employment law arena over the course of 12 months and you're already probably out of date. So it's it's very much about keeping abreast of all that's changing um, you know, seeking advice where you can. And like I agree with David, not every not every HR person has the budget or access to the budget to contact David, contact me uh, and seek our help and support. But, you know, in my view, there are certain acts, there are certain pieces of um, legislation out there that, you know, it's a little foolhardy not to get advice, not to be very careful about what you're doing. You know, it's interesting. I I have calls and, and so do our team here get calls all the time from clients who think they understand something maybe around things like statutory sick leave. Ah, sick leave. We'll, we'll replace our, our existing sick leave policy with the statutory sick leave policy. But actually, it's, it's uh, far less advantageous to our employees. Um, and, you know, it's almost like a misunderstanding of how the law affects you uh, and your organization. So I would always say, be clear about what you're doing, uh, understand the acts, understand what you ought to do and, you know, get to it. That's the biggest thing I see is um, HR people putting it on the long finger and not getting to it. And that's irrespective of size. Uh, Some of of the bigger HR departments also put things on the long finger and are far more focused on, um, you know, the more interesting things like employee engagement and experience and all of these things. But your policies and procedures are the backbone uh, of the organization. You fall back and you rely on it when you have a problem and knowing what to do when you have a problem is half the battle. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think if I might say one other thing, which is that um, there, there is off, obviously rightly in the context of the, the criminal offence of not having a policy, a focus on putting those in place. And that I'd say is your baseline obligation. The other the other point to make is that for your, your listeners who are, are involved in this space, the, the real concern is going to arise when one of these comes up in their organisation. And at that point, it's very helpful to have a policy but it's going to be of little use if it hasn't been appropriately communicated to your managers and they don't actually understand it themselves. Um, as Mary says, it's not the most straightforward of um, HR arenas. Um, and so a level of training to the extent that it's possible within particular organisations is really advisable for any managers who might be receiving this. Um, because someone being told that, hey, there's a fuel leak outside, um, may not understand that that actually could 
open a bit of a hornet's nest and bring them down a rabbit hole of protected disclosures, uh, that, that could really be a costly uh, omission in, in not having that person trained on the legislation. So uh, just to say the importance of training, which I'm sure is something your listeners are aware of anyway, but just repeat that. 100% doesn't we? Probably because they hear it all the time from us. We, we, you know, it's my it's my favourite uh, drum to beat. Is like you know, get to it, get to it, do get it done, um, because it, it's it's the one thing. I mean, I I still know um, HR people who haven't updated their dignity at work procedures with the, with what they call the new code of practice. Yeah, even yeah. though it's in place two or three years now. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. I suppose you know. A policy, I would say, is is a necessary but not a sufficient means of discharging your obligations. And yeah. you're having that in place to demonstrate that you know what's what's involved in all of this and that you've committed to doing certain minimum things, protecting people from penalisation and following a particular procedure. Um, but it's all pretty uh, theoretical unless the people who are going to receive those kind of reports know what to do. Uh, and that, that may not be an enormous undertaking either. Obviously, it's great if you can have someone like Mary or myself speak to your organisation and, and give training to managers or whatever it might be. But um, it might be just the case that you draw attention of managers to it, you know, flag certain briefings, maybe the likes of myself or Mary have put together. Uh, and so that they're just aware of the, the potentially very wide scope of this and that it can arise in any number of scenarios. And I've seen that bear fruits in any number of cases that I've been in where something has been caught at an early stage and it's really reduced the liability of an employer in a case that they might find themselves in later. 100%. So look, a lot to do, but thankfully a lot of advice and, and guidance and, and templates and all this kind of stuff out there. So we do really appreciate your time, um, Mary and David. So thank you for a very practical discussion. And I think a lot of people will have their, their notepads out full of notes. So so we do appreciate that. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. If you are enjoying these episodes, do please feel free to share them with colleagues, friends, and family. And even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate it. We know we mentioned a couple of cases there, so I'll make, the, make sure to put those in the show notes so you can access those directly uh, while you listen to this episode. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at InsideHR.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember... If you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.